0: Marty Frederick and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Welcome to another episode of Rethinking Faith. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is the ever beautiful Marty Frederick. Marty, what's up, man?
1: Oh, you know, just being beautiful, I guess.
0: Nice. According to you. Well, that's a hard job. It is. Someone's got to do it, but it's right. right. (laughs) What? How do, how do you maintain your beauty standards? What does that look like for you? Well, first
1: things first, you have to have a good cup of coffee, no matter what okay. that is like a, a must. And then if you haven't had coffee for the day, you're you at risk of gargoyling is what I call it. Um, you know, so you got to have coffee. And then after coffee, you just got to grow a really great beard.
0: Oh, man, uh, I can't do that. So I'll never be beautiful.
1: Well, but but here's the thing all that matters is that one person thinks you're beautiful and that's true for you so who cares about the rest of the
0: people yeah well i'm glad that you're the one person that thinks i'm beautiful (laughs) it's definitely not my wife
1: (laughs) well noelle if you're listening which i know you're not um (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad you appreciate josh because if you didn't i don't know what would happen to him
0: yeah it'd be bad kill my kill my non-existent ego
1: but Josh, before we get started with our guests, because I have to do this, I just can't help not doing this. This okay. is really needed. Um, dude, the Bruins kicked the capitals behind.
0: You should have said ass, it's a stronger word.
1: Like it wasn't even like it wasn't even a hard thing to do. Like it was like oh. super
0: easy. Very easy. All and the-
1: like I would, I don't know what I'd well, I do know what I'd rather. I would rather my team not make the playoffs, then make the playoffs, but then get just brutalized. Oh, yeah,
0: for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's the third time in a row that they've lost in the first round of the playoffs. And, I mean, I think some major changes are coming. The Caps are, I don't know if you know this, but they are the oldest team in the league.
1: Well, if you have Zidane Chara
0: on your team, still... Yeah, then it's time. Right, right, <laughs> to right. To right. find some new players. So, the average age of the team is insanely high. Basically, they were old, slow, and beat up. Like more than half the team is nursing insane injuries and it just it was not going to end well. They signed uh,
1: Sergei Fedorov or Steve Yzerman. So-,
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so good good on the the Bruins for being young and fast and talented. Yeah. Uh, I think some major changeups are coming in this offseason. Um some big ones and some of those young kids that we've been developing need to uh step up and i'm i'm looking forward to it but yeah i'm not i'm not one of those people that are like oh no it, it, you know it's the ref's fault blah blah blah. like the caps just got outplayed and they kind of sucked
1: so at so, the end of the episode today are you going to say go bruins hell no
0: go caps all day, or, every day
1: well so i i this this is rabbit hole so we don't have to keep going but like are you yeah, the person yeah. that cheers against the team that beat your team or cheers for the team that beat your team? Because it, uh, it, there's arguments for both.
0: It depends on the team. I mean, I'm not a fan of the Bruins, but there are some players on the Bruins that I really like. Okay. Um and so it's it's really going to depend on who they play cuz they're either going to play the Islanders or the Penguins, and if they play yeah. the Penguins, I'm going to cheer for Boston. If they play the Islanders, I'll I'll cheer for the Islanders cuz Barry Trotz is their former Caps coach. Okay. But, All right. Well, now I just let it ask. You know, there's people who, like, really don't care about this whole thing. Like, Jace, text me on a regular basis. Stop talking about hockey. No one cares.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> so Jace, this is for you. That part. We yeah, care just... about hockey. And even <laughs> though we love you, this is our podcast. So
0: True. That's true. <laughs> That's true. That's true.
1: Just thought I'd make it clear that, like... <laughs>
0: All right, man. Well, let's go ahead and bring on our guest because they're waiting patiently and uh, I don't know if they care about hockey at all. So we don't want them to, you know, cancel the Zoom call or something on us. So (laughs) uh, with us today is Gabriel Gordon. Gabe, how's it going, man?
2: It's going well, man. It's going well. How are you guys?
0: We're well. Well, Gabe, before we go jump
1: into our main topic for the day, we just have a couple like brief um, bio type questions. So, we wanted to ask. So, first, uh, who are you and what do you do?
2: Oh, man, that's a big question. Well, I like to start off by saying I have the same Myers Briggs as the Joker and Captain Jack Sparrow. Um, so, that pretty much sums it all up. But uh, okay. my name is Gabriel Nathaniel Gordon. Um, I have my mom's maiden name, my dad's name is Roth. Um, and I'm originally from the Seattle area in Washington. The best state in the Union, obviously. And I, my grandparents were Assembly of God missionaries. So I spent some time growing up overseas in Thailand. Um, I spent a year of high school living in South Dakota, and I mostly lived in exile, the people of Seattle exiled us to Oklahoma. And so I grew up there. And I went to Oklahoma Baptist University where I got my undergraduate degree in anthropology and I double majored in cross-cultural ministry with an emphasis in international church planting, which means I don't make any money. And then (laughs) after being out of school for a couple years and and marrying my beautiful wife. Um, I started attending Portland Seminary, where I'm getting my master's at theological studies with an emphasis in biblical studies, um, and where I wrote my thesis, not in the subject of biblical studies, but in historical theology um, over the church father origin, and his comparison with uh, the fundamentalist understanding of scripture. And I just wrote my second book. So I think that kind of sums it up. I have a dog named Carl Bart. That's that's important too. <laughs> we can hear them. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: so, sorry about sweet. that. <laughs> no, you're good. Josh's dogs bark on the podcast all the time. So. I and
0: and I'm wearing a dog <clears throat> shirt. Look, this is my <clears throat> my, my wife's wife's uh, company. She works for called Barks. So, listeners, it's a kick-ass shirt. It says love, but the O is a pit bull face. Nice. Now they know a round
1: face, a round face. That's what they. That's the. That's the like the I don't know the weird name for them sometimes, but. Um, okay no, you're Cool. talking
0: about Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> no, baseball, we can't we can't. Yeah, do we that. can't
2: do that. Um, oh, I, I, I should say one more thing, too, though. Um, And so here's a biograph. I'm going to I'm going to sing you the Father Abraham song, but the, the Jewish version. And you have to be at least partially Jewish. My friends, they say I'm Jew ish because I'm I'm a quarter Jewish. Um, And so but you have to have some sort of Jewish heritage to be able to sing the song. But this is this is the Jewish version not the virgin definitely not um this is the jewish version of the father abraham song are you guys ready are you ready we're ready ready for this okay father abraham had many sons clap along guys many sons had father abraham i am one of them and you're adopted (laughs) if you grew up in the church that's hilarious but if not that's so boring (laughs) I like it. (laughs)
1: Nice. Thanks. Yeah. Well, so Gabe, we started the show off. Wait, do you want to be called Gabe or Gabriel? Do you care?
2: You call me Bob if you want. All right, Carl. Um,
1: So um, we started the show talking about hockey because it's important to Josh and I. So um, who is your favorite ice hockey team?
2: So I hate sports. Um, So I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for that. (laughs) It's okay. Although it was fun listening to you guys. Um, I would have to say the mighty ducks. Cause that's what someone told me to say. And then my wife told me to say the avalanche because we live in Colorado and that's the Colorado hockey team. So but you I've know, never seen them. Okay.
1: Being from Seattle starting next season, I believe you will be able to say your favorite team is the Seattle Kraken,
0: which is a dope oh. ass name for a hockey. Team. Cause
1: they Seattle's getting a NHL ice hockey team.
0: Yep. interesting
2: and, so it'll probably be similar to the way my family has treated s- the supersonics so yeah when so none of my family likes sports that's just i i don't know why just even both sides of the family mom and dad's side nobody likes sports um i know it's a travesty for some people but when uh the supersonics seattle supersonics the basketball team left and went to oklahoma and became the Thunder, you know, mm-hmm. um, one, people in Seattle don't like the Thunder, even though nobody, I, as far as I'm aware, went and saw their games. And two, um, my family has always seen them as traitors. And so um, it'll probably be like that, that we we'll, won't pay attention to them until they leave Seattle and become another team. And then we'll, you know, <laughs> be mad at them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah be mad at them.
1: <laughs> well, from what I've, from my time living in Seattle for a few years, I re- I remember that it was like the Mariners and mm-hmm. or the Seahawks. Yeah. But that was pretty much the extent of like what people actually cared about. There might have been other teams, but I don't think anyone cared any further.
2: Yeah. Um, So interesting. I don't know when you were there, but before 2014, before the Seattle uh, uh, Seahawks won the Super Bowl. uh I don't remember anyone in Seattle wearing any Seahawks gear at all in the airport, in, in the city, wherever. I don't remember it. And then as soon as the Seahawks won the Super Bowl, I went to Seattle. I flew in airport. Everyone was wearing Seattle superhawks or superhawks, Seahawks gear. Everyone in Seattle was wearing Seahawks gear. So I, I, I get the feeling that Seattleites are bandwagoners. Okay. So, all right. I don't know. Maybe you have a different take on that, but you well, know more about sports than I do. So,
1: but you know more about Seattle. So we'll just, we'll leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, then I guess the, the only other bio question we have, which is much more um theologically serious i suppose um what would you, what would you say is the most important aspect of your faith that you have had to rethink
2: oh that i've had to rethink oh man um so the way you know the the popular term is deconstruction and people talk about you know the phrase uh, i deconstructed my faith or whatever Uh, which isn't how you phrased it, but I'm I'm going to use this as a jumping off point. Uh, I have learned to respond to that or to think about it this way, that I never deconstructed my faith. I deconstructed the theology uh, surrounding my faith. And so my faith has always been in Jesus. So I I almost wanted to say Jesus, but I think in reality, um, the, the biggest part of my faith that I had to rethink or my theology was the Bible.
1: Okay. Yeah, and and I think I think a lot of times deconstruction gets a bad rap, and I, and I think yeah. um, for many people, often how you just described it is what they are referring to when they yeah, yeah. are deconstructing. They're not saying, "Well, I don't believe in Jesus anymore." I think they're saying, "I believe in Jesus, but all this other stuff has gotten the way, and so I don't want to yeah. believe in Jesus plus." I want yeah. to believe in Jesus and in order, to, in, in, in their mind, in order to do that, I have to do this. So that, yeah, that's, that's really cool. I, I mean, Josh, you have anything to add to that, I, but it sounded good. To, I mean, it sounds good to me. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, I mean, I'm on board and that's, that's kind of why our, our podcast is called rethinking faith in the re is in parentheses because it's, it's implying that this is an ongoing process. And so mm. um, like, I understand the language of deconstruction reconstruction. I used to use it a lot and I know we have listeners that use it and that's fine. I don't want to, you know, take that away from anybody, but I just think thinking of things as like maybe uh, like evolving, like, you know, there's like the evolving faith conference. I like that mm-hmm. language. Like my faith has evolved. It's grown. It's shifted. Um, I don't know. Yeah. But I think, I mean, but I still think deconstruction can fit in there because there are ideas that need to be deconstructed, and then you can rethink yeah, yeah. those things. So I don't know, I like to think of it as like this ongoing process, the The phrase that I like to throw around. And hopefully one day, um, I'll have my own book <laughs> about this. Uh, but it, that faith is, is a journey of becoming, and we mm-hmm. never really quite arrive. Um, and so just this journey of becoming is kind of what it means to be human. Um, and so maybe one day, uh, I'll have a book of my own and I'll be cool like you cuz you wrote a book and I haven't. <laughs> actually you said you've you've done too, so even better. <laughs> um yeah, just, you know, flex on us. And uh so, <laughs> flex. Yeah, so and today that's actually what we wanted to talk to you about uh is your most recent book, which is called God Speaks and it's about uh ins- the inspiration of scripture, which is cool cuz you you said the Bible is the thing that you've had to rethink the most. So this should be a, a fun conversation. Um, but can you just kind of tell us a bit about how this project came to be? Yeah.
2: Um, So in the introduction of the book, I talk about um, this book, this project is kind of a culmination of the last seven or eight years of my life. Um, I begin with the story of um, that I kind of trace everything back to. And that is a moment when I was in, I was a sophomore of, uh, in college. Um, I had just been asked to preach at a church and it was going to be my first time preaching. Never been asked to preach before. I wasn't a pastoral major and they think that pastoral majors were the only ones that could preach. And so um, anyway, I, for some reason, I was thinking about not using scripture. I don't remember the exact reason why, but uh, I, I told my, I told this to my roommate and he immediately, and I'm still friends with Garrett today, but he immediately was like, you cannot do that. And so we, we ended up getting to this big argument about like, was, was the Bible necessary for salvation? And was it necessary? And some of these terms, I would use different terms now, but wasn't necessary for salvation and wasn't necessary uh, uh, to walk in your faith once you were saved and uh i i essentially gave no to both those answers uh, kind of citing abraham and anyone that lived before the, any of the scriptures were written what if if the scriptures were necessary for both those things then abraham couldn't have been saved and he couldn't have walked with god uh we know that that's not true and so therefore it's not necessary um so, so but i so that's the first moment i won't go through all the moments but there there integral moments in my life and in my story that led up to the culmination of this book um but kind of where the the beginning of the actual writing process and and kind of bringing these ideas came together was um i think my first year of seminary so i started reading thomas j ord uh but in between undergrad and and seminary and he came up to portland and i'd had him on our podcast a few times and he'd helped me uh he guided me through the writing process for my first book, uh, which is actually dedicated to him. And after, uh, after all that stuff, he came up to Portland uh, to speak at my seminary. And so we got coffee together at our favorite coffee shop up there. And well, not his, mine and my seminary buddies. But uh, I was basically telling him that I think I wanted to write a book on the implications uh, of essential kenosis his theology of the uncontrolling love of god for biblical inspiration and he had basically said no one had written on this Um, i think there's one small article uh in the uncontrolling love of god essays that kind of touches on the subject but not really um and but other than that there's nothing no books no articles nothing that he's aware of or that i'm aware of and so Uh, that's kind of where the the culmination of this book came from was that conversation or some of the ideas um, behind that conversation Um, and there's a lot more to it but that uh, that's kind of the beginning of it so
0: yeah right on man I'm so like I told you when we were texting I'm so glad you you did write it because I've always wanted to read one Um, (laughs) specifically uh, about the implications of uh, central kenosis and and the inspiration of scripture. So, well done, thank you. I wrote this for you, Josh. Oh, sweet, thanks. Just you. I appreciate it. No one else. He just wrote
1: it last week, too. By the way, (laughs) after you guys started talking, and Josh was like, "I really wanted this book." He's like, "Well, okay, I'll write it then." And so that was it. Yep. Yeah. That's it's the handlebar mustache. That's what gets him where he where he needs to go. So. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um well so Gabe so when it comes to the inspiration of scripture what's some of the common ideas and understandings that are floating around right now
2: Yeah so in the book i talk about uh six popular notions of inspiration and when i say popular i use that phrase intentionally because i don't think these are historical notions of inspiration i think they're new um and in that sense they're progressive or novel or liberal whatever terms you want to use which I think, you know, helps to frame the conversation because a lot of these ideas of inspiration tend to get framed as if they're old, as as if they're the historical view that Christians have always believed. But in reality, they're very progressive in the sense that they're new, right? They're 100, 150 years old. So so there's six notions. um, and, And most of these I would put in that category of they're actually new. So I just say these are popular notions of inspiration. These are what the loudest voices are saying. So uh one they, and they all kind of center around the idea that when you read 2 Timothy 3:16 all scripture is God breathed through God inspired that that means scripture is God's word and that scripture is inerrant so they all kind of center around that so the first problem i deal with is the problem of evil um, because the underlying theology uh, uh be- behind the idea that the Bible is a inerrant word of God is also the same underlying theology behind, um, what most of these people have, uh, how they deal with the problem of evil. So, uh, should I describe briefly what the problem of evil is? Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That'd be helpful. And so this, um, I think, yeah, so I have like out of the six, you don't have to go. Yeah, through you all of them.
2: you you tell me what you want to talk about, and I'll talk about.
0: It. No, no, yeah, I got you. So the we have three that we wanted to like to jump on specifically, like okay, to have more detail about. But um, the I think before we jump to the problem of evil, though, maybe a uh, and it's my fault I wrote the question. Maybe a better way to to ask it would have been um. So, I don't know. Let's go relational with it. Like growing up what like what did what were you told about the inspiration of scripture like what what was your understanding like for me i was told some version of verbal dictation theory like okay god whispered in paul's ear hey paul write this down and paul like wrote it down and like that was my understanding that's what i was taught i was taught that the bible is inerrant um and that's kind of where i hung out for a while i don't know if that's similar to marty's story or not marty you can chime in but that's I think start there and then we'll jump into your, uh, your, your arguments against. Yes.
2: Yeah. So I guess maybe then the best place to start is to say that the idea that I grew up in, uh, so I grew up assembly of God in Southern Baptist. I was in the Southern Baptist church, even though theologically I wasn't Southern Baptist at this point, but until I was about 23 years old, at which point I was kicked out of a church in Seattle. That's when I kind of left the Southern Baptist world. I kind of took that as a, okay, I've been kicked out. I'm good i'll go somewhere else um but in that period i and especially early on in the assembly of god background so i'll quickly say this pentecostalism is in its origins is not fundamentalist and when i say fundamentalist i more or less mean belief in inerrancy of scripture um but over the last hundred years or so and i don't know all the history a lot of pentecostal assembly of god Foursquare whatever have taken on some of those fundamentalist elements. Um, and my family was one of those uh, Pentecostal groups had taken on that fun- those fundamental settlements. So growing up in the Assembly of God world and then going into the Southern Baptist world and eventually into a Southern Baptist college, <clears throat> that's essentially what I was taught as well is that your faith is entirely based off the Bible because the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Um, that is, and I think we were also taught um, uh, specifically verbal plenary, uh, inspiration that um, each word was uh, given to the biblical authors and that they essentially acted as instruments. It's not quite dictation theory <clears throat> in which God, you know, basically picked up the person and possessed them and, and used them as a pen. It's similar. You get the same product. I think um, they would disagree with that. So I don't want to put them all in a box, but But yeah, that's essentially what I grew up with, and because it was the inerrant Word of God, my 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 faith was supposed to be based off
0: of that. Yeah, it was like. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Marty. I was going to say,
1: Josh, you asked earlier. I I don't know that I really remember like being told anything specifically, but I think I walked around believing that it was more so like these people, like someone like a Paul, um, were writing things on jesus they were writing things on jesus on their own but they were inspired by by the holy spirit and so like they <clears throat> i remember kind of taking that as like okay like they sat down and they just said like we want to write this letter we want to, i want to write this book i want to write this essay whatever and they were writing it as if you or i would write something um but the but the inspiration of that was jesus And so as they were writing these things, they were being spoken to in a different sort of like they were like deep in the word, deep in Bible study. And so when they were doing not they were studying the Bible, but you know what I'm saying? Like they were deep in that place. And so as they were writing things, what they were writing was accurate because it was being inspired by God. But not like but not like you guys are saying dictation where like, you know, god was right there telling them what to write or possessing their body and moving the pen or the whatever uh it wasn't anything like that but more so that they were i guess that's what i took away from it and so i i mean i don't know any any more than that but i i think that's i think that's kind of like a a passive answer (laughs) yeah well what about (laughs) those lines because because i never was given it specifically
0: yeah what about at gordon conwell like when you because i mean that's like the like evangelical like that's a very popular evangelical seminary so like Mm -hmm. did they with inspiration on scripture i feel like they they probably took more to like a the plenary uh, inspiration of scripture kind of thing
1: well gordon conwell has many different denominations that make up its student body so i think a lot of those types of things i think they i mean i don't remember that being discussed inherently okay anywhere specifically i think it was more so assumed that you were the type of person that would say the bible was an, ins- the inspired word of god and i think that that was the terminology that they would have used and i think how you got there may or may not have been something that they would have like like that they, it, w- it wouldn't have made a difference like how Lord. you got there um now, maybe I'm wrong and maybe I missed it. Like maybe I fell asleep that day in class or, <laughs> or had to work and wasn't in class that day or something. And maybe so if someone that I know went there is listening right now and you're like, dude, Marty is way off his rocker with that, then that's fine. But I just don't remember that being like a, a discussion point in any class. And I like people like, I remember being, I remember people arguing about baptism in class. I remember people arguing about women in ministry in class, uh, but I don't remember and like, I think people, it was just sort of like, Hey, like if you, like, if you believe that the, the word is the inspired word of God, then that's the end of the discussion. Um, sort word. of like you should know this already. I, I don't know, but. Okay. Well, I think Gabe, I thank you for writing this book because I I, I think it, I think it, I think it speaks into God speaks. <laughs> <It's>, it speaks <laughs> into a discussion point that I think many people take for granted. Yes, and they just kind of walk away walk away from the idea that the Bible is the inspired word of God and just they say okay, and like they're just supposed to know what that means, I guess. Um, so thank you for for spelling it out for us.
2: <laughs>
0: You're welcome. <laughs> yeah so the of the of the six arguments that you um, that you have in your your uh, book, I think three of them stood out to Marty and I as like this would be fun to to chat about. Um, so the three that we wanted to touch on if, if you're a game is the problem of evil, um, inerrancy and our friend Greg Boyd. Um, so let's let's start with the problem of evil. Why does the problem of evil throw a wrench into things when it comes to the inspiration of scripture?
2: Yeah, so this isn't typically something I've heard um, when I've you know, I've read a number of books that um, about the idea of inerrancy. Um, and I, let me, let me say this real quick. Um, I'm not writing this book. Um, I, you know, we were talking about deconstruction, reconstruction and that camp earlier. I think one of the areas that people in those camps have not done deconstruction well is that they end up coming out of fundamentalism as jaded fundamentalist. And all they are doing now is reacting against and they're angry and they're hurt and reacting out of that hurt as anger. Um, towards fundamentalists and they can't seem to see them as their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's not what I'm doing in the book. I'm not trying to say um, fundamentalists aren't Christians. I'm not. Um, um, I, I I think I went through that season of life and I think I'm more so on the other side. But so I just want to say that all this stuff um, for, for people listening is is not me trying to beat up on my fundamentalist brothers and sisters. So I think most of them are, but they believe what they believe about the Bible because they think it's the most faithful way to be, uh, most, uh, best way to be faithful to God or most faithful way to be faithful to God. I don't know how to say that, but so that being said, um, I think the problem of evil isn't typically addressed when we talk about inspiration that at least that I've come across. Um, but the problem of evil can basically be explained pretty simply. It's the idea that if God is all-powerful and all loving, why doesn't God prevent evil and suffering in the world? If God is all powerful, um, then you would think God could prevent it. If God is all loving, you think God would want to prevent it. So the fact that God doesn't um becomes a problem um for anyone that believes in a a God um who is classically defined. Um so um so one of the things that I, I point out, and I, I started to hit on this earlier, uh, is that it's a problem because the same theology that is unable to answer the problem of evil in fundamentalist circles is also unable or, or sorry is also the same theology that is necessary for the popular notions of inspiration, the idea that the bible's an errant word of God. Uh, essentially God has to be able to control. And so uh, if God if the Bible is going to be produced as God's an word, There has to be some level of control over the authors in order to produce that text as uh, inerrant, as God's word. Otherwise, it would be interpreted. It would be mediated. It wouldn't be directly God's inerrant word. So there's a certain level of control that's necessary. But if God has that same level of control for inspiration, then it means that God has a certain level of control that God could probably prevent evil. Um, And then again, why doesn't God? So you, you fall back into the problem of evil. So that's the, that's essentially a brief overview of that section.
0: Yeah, no, that's really good. And I, I agree with you. I haven't heard anybody use the problem of evil when talking about the inspiration of scripture, but I really, like, I was a big fan of that specific section. Um, just, I mean, cause I think you're right. <laughs> like, I, I think, yeah, I think it's really good. I like it a lot. Um, and it, yeah, it also, I want to say this without it sounding mean, like, it seems, it seems like it would almost be arbitrary for God to just have complete control over somebody to produce this inerrant text. And like, that's the one thing that God wanted to be correct. And like everything else, you know, evil, whatever, doesn't matter. Like that, is that, does that make sense? Like that just seems arbitrary. <laughs> like yeah, why, and it, why would it be this text? Why not more important things like stopping Hitler? <laughs> yeah, and
2: and I think that's I think that's exactly right. But even if we stuck with the text for a moment, we could ask, well, why didn't God produce the autographs? You know, we don't have any of the original autograph, the actual letter written by Paul to the Corinthians. We have copies of copies of copies. And if God, you know, classic uh fundamentalist doctrine would say only the autographs are the inerrant word of God, which means we don't actually have the inerrant word of God. And so if God actually could control and did control to produce this uh, inerrant uh, word of God written down in a text, then why didn't God continue that level of control uh, and give us the autographs? Um, or, you know, make a do it on like a, you know, antimanium or something, you know, some sort of indestructible metal that we we would still have those uh, today. Uh, But I think you're right um, that uh, I think the Hitler example is probably a better one in the sense of we should care more, I think, about that than we we should, you know, that we don't have the original autographs. Um, But, yeah, that's a good point, Josh.
0: Marty, any any thoughts on the problem of evil and the inspiration of scripture?
1: I hate the problem of evil. (laughs)
0: <laughs> That's why you should be. Well, actually, I don't, Gabe's not an open and relational person. I don't think. But no, no, what, I, yeah.
1: I, I hate the problem of evil and just in in general. And I, I think, I think because not for my sake, but for the fact that it's a hang up for many people to find any relationship with Jesus at all. And mm-hmm. so, like, I, and and so I think people get to that place where they, you know, they lose someone or something happens to them or like something happens to them that doesn't make sense and like that's why ord's work on the on the topic is so good because like it, it helps to explain that and someone if for somebody um and i've even though i wouldn't call myself open relational at all um i've used ord's argument and discussion and discussing point on that for people that are in those places and it I've found that that feels and seems way more empathetic than like the whole, well, God's mysterious, <laughs> yeah. you know, well, God, you know, God's ways are not our ways or, you know, or of course way more empathetic than the whole, like, well, maybe that person, you know, wasn't praying hard enough, or maybe, maybe you haven't gone to, you haven't gone to church in a long time. Like maybe that's part of it, you know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, that, like that makes people feel awful, you know, it's like, they feel terrible. And then like, the common arguments turn it into this like you had this thing happen to you and you're the problem and <laughs> like i'm yeah. gonna shame you into so yeah i mean i hate the problem of people for the fact that it pushes people away from jesus so often because the church and when i say the church i mean like the evangelical church um said had a really difficult time finding ways to describe or talk to people about that when they have the legitimate question. You know, I remember this is slightly off. No, it's not. I remember when the tsunami hit Asia, like the massive tsunami and like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people were killed. Um, People were like, well, a loving God wouldn't do that to like, wouldn't just kill all these people. And I remember people in the church saying, well, but those people probably weren't Christians. So like, of course, God would do that. And so talk about like taking a wedge and building it deeper and deeper and deeper into people, you know, making them feel worse and worse and worse about God. Um, You know, like using this like vengeful idea of God as there as like a, well, those people over there were probably Muslim or something else. And so like, of course, God would kill them. And it's like, Wait, what? Like (laughs) it's the most ridiculous thing to say. And even being like steeped and rooted deep in evangelicalism, um, like at the time, being a pretty, pretty brand new Christian uh myself, um, I remember in my mind, like, oh yeah, well, I guess that kind of makes sense. I mean, it's it's hard to hear. And so, but it kind of makes sense, I guess. So I I guess that's my my thing. Like like you were talking about the problem of evil and my idea in my way sucks because it drives people away from wanting to be around Jesus. And I think because we don't ever know how to talk about it.
2: Um, Yeah. And Tom Ord says, he's said multiple times, um, that this is the number one reason people give for not believing in God. And so what I tried to point out here is if your theology underline your doctrine of biblical inspiration can't address the problem of evil adequately then it's not an adequate doctrine of inspiration. Now, what I will say in addition to that is at the end of the day, and I think I say this at that end of the section, um, at the end of the day, no solution is going to be perfect, right? Um, And and Tom would affirm um, that there is a level of, there is mystery, right? Um, I think he's more uncomfortable with mystery than I am. I tend to be much more Eastern Orthodox in my theology so i'm probably a little bit more comfortable with mystery um although i'm probably less uncomfortable with mystery than most eastern orthodox uh but but as i i do think that that is an issue that doc uh, pro, um doctrines of biblical inspiration need to address and if they don't then they're they're failing in a pretty big yeah. aspect
1: yeah well i think the next argument that we'd want to just talk about briefly here um is just the idea of inerrancy in scripture and um kind of how that comes together uh within what you're in within your book
2: yeah so uh let me say this because we've been throwing around the term evangelical a lot um so i would actually make a distinction between evangelicals and fundamentalists i was on um a call with uh, uh john sanders um for my podcast and he said that essentially um I hope this was actually in the interview and not off topic, but anyway, he, I don't think this would be bad for me to tell people, but basically he said that fundamentalists have co-opted the term evangelical. And I think that's spot on. His From a historical point of view, they're not the same. So, you know, if you think about, you know, Kind of Gregory Boyd's concentric circles, but in terms of the Protestant tradition as a whole, you have you know Protestantism that arose 500 years ago. You have Evangelicalism that arose with um, George Whitfield, the Wesley brothers, and Jonathan Edwards, um, 250 years ago, and then you have Fundamentalism that arose 100, 150 years ago. So all fun. The way I like to say is all fundamentalists are Evangelical in a historical sense, and not all Evangelicals are fundamentalists. And the there's four kind of pillars that uh, David Bevington, who's a British church historian, uh, gives for uh, his definition of evangelicalism, which is kind of the base. People can disagree with that, but he's kind of got the starting definition and it's crucicentrism, biblicism, uh, um, uh, conversionism, and social action. So the social action would include evangelism, social justice, the uh, which the evangelicals in the 19th century were big on. Um, crucicentrism is the cross-centered idea um biblicism is the idea that the bible has some sort of authority it doesn't include inerrancy inerrancy didn't exist when evangelicalism arose and then it also includes conversionism the idea that you need to be converted so whereas um the five main pillars of fundamentalism are are inerrancy penal substitutionary atonement uh, i think the virgin birth miracles and the deity of christ well out of those five only one of those is brand new only one of those completely um, is a fundamental uniquely fundamentalist trait and that's inerrancy so the doctrine of penal substitution goes back at least four or five hundred years um and then the rest are what all christians eastern orthodox catholic um protestants have believed you know going back to i think jesus but um but inerrancy is brand new so when i say fundamentalist i mean inerrancy and that's why I'll I make a distinction between evangelicals and fundamentalists I go to an evangelical seminary for I'm not an evangelical. Let me say that. Um, I'm not a Protestant. Um, but um I, I do think there is a pretty big difference there. And I want to be fair to evangelicals who don't believe in inerrancy. Um, and I think it's pretty messed up that fundamentalists have co-opted that word. Anyway, so that was kind of <clears throat> that was a little bit of a rabbit trail. I told you how to ADHD. Um, but to actually get to your question, Marty. Um, so, so that kind of being some of the framework to see all of this in, um, inerrancy is kind of the linchpin for, for fundamentalism in general, uh, but particularly their understanding of biblical inspiration. And, and one of the things I talk about in, in that section is that, um, although loosely defined inerrancy just means the Bible is without error. Um, there are lots of nuances to that. Depending on what fundamentalist you talk to, they're going to, they're going to have a really different perspective on that. So like John Walton, who teaches the Wheaton, he's not going to say that um Genesis one is literal and that it's inerrant and in it's a literal meaning. He's going to say, well, if we took the Bible literally in the sense of what does it literally mean in its own historical context, you know, it 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 has to do with ancient cosmology. It's not answering our modern questions, but he's still going to say the Bible's errant Whereas maybe a more popular view um is that the Bible is inerrant uh in a literal sense for all of it. So it's a it's inerrant in its theology, it's inerrant in its history, it's inerrant in its science, um and all those sorts of things. So there, so so I, I tried to be nuanced and, and to explain that there are different variations of inerrancy. Ultimately, though, I think all of them um produce, I think there are multiple problems um with inerrancy, and I talk about that in in the in the book. Um But I think the biggest problem is that if the Bible is an inerrant, then it has
0: to be God. Yes, I loved that distinction that you made in that chapter, drawing the two together. Can you, but so for people who might be confused, it's like, okay, I don't, I don't see it. Can you just thread that, that line for us briefly?
2: yeah so i will um i'll quote um one of the people i quote in that section real quick just to to this is not um just to say that i'm not i'm not making stuff up but then i will jump ahead to my carl bart argument which is the main the main piece uh but So Matthew Barrett is a Southern Baptist uh, professor and scholar that teaches at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And in his book, uh, God's Word Alone, uh, which is actually anachronistic. So it's part of the uh, Zondervan put in 2017, kind of as a 500 Protestant anniversary, put out a series on the five solas. And uh, he did the one on scripture, but she called it God's Word Alone, which is actually anachronistic because Luther did not believe the Bible is the word of God. So to say God's word alone is actually an anachronism. So if you watch Legends of Tomorrow, you know you know what an anachronism, right? Right. So um, actually that's where I got, got a firm grasp of what that term means. So thanks to DC. Uh, but anyway, so Matthew Barrett in his book, that book on page, I think 243, he says, it is clear that for Jesus, God and scripture can be spoken of synonymously, demonstrating that scripture is the very word of God we should not attempt to drive a wedge between the two. So you have this thing in fundamentalism, both modern fundamentalism. There's another book uh, edited by John MacArthur that has a bunch of uh, well-noted fundamentalists uh, arguing for inerrancy. And there are multiple places in that um, where I think John MacArthur in his section says that when scripture speaks of God and it speaks of scripture, sometimes it's unclear of which one is being referred to because it, it's speaking about them as the same thing essentially um and you also so you see that in some of the modern fundamentalists but you also see it in the the kind of bible or the original text of the fundamentalist movement that came out I think in 1917 they say very similar things that Jesus and the bible essentially are, are the same thing that God and so they end up making bible a part of God so we actually don't
1: talk about John MacArthur on this podcast ever
2: oh um, I, i'm sorry is that like the f-word? I'm I'm totally kidding. Yeah. Keep going. Sorry, yeah No, 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 no worries, man. Um, so no, I will say, so I think there are a lot of fundamentalists that are have good intentions, again, that are really trying to seek God. I think John Piper, I would, I would put in that category. I think his theology is effed up, but I think he's but I think he's he's trying to be faithful to God, right? John MacArthur has the spirit of the Antichrist.
0: He's not trying to be faithful
2: to God. He has all the fruits of Satan. So, (laughs) he's an asshole. (laughs) So, you know, so I'm not being unfair to fundamentalists. I'm being, I think John MacArthur as a spirit, if by spirit of the Antichrist we mean a spirit of Antichrist, something that's antithetical to who Christ is. I think that's, he's got the fruits of the spirit, but the fruits of Satan. So, anyway, so, so. Uh, I forgot where I was going with this. So, so anyway, so fundamentalists make this claim essentially, and 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 they're so explicit about it. I I was I was doing research not only for this book but for my thesis um, about what fundamentalists think about the Bible, and I was so surprised how many times over and over and over again they essentially said very explicitly that the Bible was God. So surprised. I thought they would be more implicit about it, but they were so so explicit. God and Scripture can be spoken of synonymously. I saw that time and time again. I saw a Trinitarian formula in MacArthur's edited book that was a, and it was, wasn't was by MacArthur, it was one by the one of the contributors that basically um said that uh the spirit is truth, the father is truth, the son is truth, and the Bible is truth. And it and and there's more to that, but it basically made the Bible part of the Godhead. And I saw this over and over again, it's very explicit. So so there's no doubting they do that. I don't think it's unfair. I know people might say it's unfair. That's not actually what they're doing. I think they've written it down as I'm describing it. Um, but the question is why? How do they get to that point? And so in uh, a, a further section, I think it's this, I think it's section five. I talk about Karl Barth. Um, now, Carl Bart, um, my dog, wrote this long systematic theology series called Dogmatics and Outline Dogmatics, right? Because it was written by a dog, Carl Bart. Um, but anyway, he was. Are you a was, dad? Are you a dad? Because that was I'm, a super dad joke right there. I'm not but... a dad, but I'm glad <laughs> I named my dog Carl Bart so I can do that. I have you're 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 a dog dad. I'm that a counts. dog dad. Yeah, maybe, maybe one day, but. Um, <laughs> So, Karl Barth was a Swiss Reformed theologian in the 20th century, big stuff, right? Um, and he says in one of his dogmatics, I think it's volume one, he essentially says that God's word, when God speaks, what God speaks is never separate from God's self. God is present in and of what is spoken of. Does that make sense? Um, and so, so, so that's basically, you know, we intuit this, right? If uh, Josh told me, or if josh told marty right if uh hey marty um i know you're moving this weekend so i'm gonna go help you move this weekend okay bro uh, i'll be there eight o'clock or whatever you know i'm gonna help you move all day and then josh like ducked out and didn't have a good excuse uh marty would like josh is a douchebag and it's not really a man of his word right he'd So we, so we intuit that a person's word is not separate from themselves. It, it is indicate, it's indicating who that person's character is. So we would even say that about a liar. If Josh is known for being a liar and he gives you his word that he's going to help you move um, and he doesn't, well, really his word is still not separate from himself because who he is is a liar and his word represented that. So a person's word is never separate from themselves. We, we intuit that. Um, so how much, and so Karl Barth's basically saying this with God, God's word is never separate from God's self, whatever God speaks, God is present in, in what is said. Um, so I kind of take that, uh, and use it as an argument for, um, if you say the Bible is the word of God, I'll get to that. I don't want to spoil it. But, um, so basically if, if God's word is never separate from God's self, right. Then that means, uh, that, uh, the The Bible, or sorry not the Bible, God's word must must also have the qualities or attributes of God. So if God doesn't change um then, and and God is eternal, then that means that and and God's word is never separate from self, God's self, that means the Bible also must be eternal. And if the Bible is, we know the Bible is, you know, 2,500, 3,000 years old, depending on which book, you know, 2,000 years old, whatever. Um, so we know it came into existence. If God doesn't really change and God's word is never separate from God's self and the Bible is God's word, then God changed because at some point God did something new. And it also would mean that the Bible is, it, it, it would be eternal, right? Uh, so, so basically the argument is, Whatever you give the term or title word of God to, it has to be God. And there is something in the Christian tradition that we have done that with historically. Jesus. Jesus is the eternally spoken word of God, right? Um, And so that's kind of the, um, and I probably say it better in the... um, in the actual text. I'm a much better written communicator, I think, than a verbal communicator. But um, but that's essentially the argument. If God's word is never separate from God's self, uh, that means it has to have the same attributes as God, it would be eternal, it would be changeless. Since the Bible obviously came into existence, it would mean God changed because God did something new. Um, and also that it would be eternal and therefore it would be God. So God's word has to be Jesus.
0: Yeah. Yeah, right on. And that fits nicely into my Anabapt tish uh perspectives of jesus as the ultimate revelation of who god is jesus is the word of god and i think historically like you demonstrate in your book um the church has believed that and spoken of that as well um but the the last thing as far as arguments go before we jump into this idea of essential kenosis um and i'm going to try to be like oh what's the the phrase when you do like good listening skills you like recite something back to somebody what i what hear it, you saying is right so yeah, yeah when i read your section on greg boyd what i heard you saying is this basically greg makes this argument in his book uh cross vision or if you want the bigger version crucifixion of the warrior god um that basically if we want to know what god is like you know the ultimate revelation is is jesus but specifically jesus uh crucified. And so yeah. that's the ultimate revelation of God. And so then he takes that and applies it to scripture and says anytime that the bible doesn't look like uh Jesus crucified, maybe something else is going on, but specifically he talks about how the cross is both beautiful and ugly. It's um ugly because it's demonstrating the evil and wickedness of humanity killing the creator, uh, but it's also beautiful in that God allows allows i'm emphasizing that word for a reason allows that to happen and so then greg applies that to scripture and so say something like the canaanite genocide he would say god is stooping down uh to the uh writer's you know level so to speak and it's again it's the idea of uh the cruciform hermeneutic the the canaanite genocide bit is people being really ugly and shitty and not God. And God allows that to happen with an inspiration. And what I hear you saying is you take issue with the word allows when it comes to Greg's argument. Did I get that?
2: Did you I did. You summed up his view, I think, pretty well. And and yeah, and that's exactly what I take issue with. I love Greg. Um, I, I say Greg. I don't know. Who, I've never met him in person. I've He's very nice. On email a couple times. He <laughs> does seem nice from you know things I've listened to him about. Um, but his book, Cross Vision and uh Inspired Imperfection, I think are some of the best books that I've read on the Bible. Um, <clears throat> so I highly recommend those books. Uh where yeah, where I would have a problem. And it wasn't actually my idea to critique Great boy This was Tom Ord's idea. Wait to go, like, Tom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> What'd you say? I said, wait, way to go, Tom.
2: Yeah, and I was when Tom told me that I should, you know, critique him on his accommodation theory. It's like, you want me to take on the bull? I'll get the horns, man. You know, take on the bull, get the horns. Um, But uh, but so it wasn't on my it wasn't on my idea. Great, just hearing that. Um, But it it, kind of the example I use in the book: um, if uh, my friend has a daughter, and I actually had a friend in mind, but none of this is actually true of the friend. It's just a hypothetical argument. But if my friend has a daughter. And the daughter thinks that her daddy wants her to go and kill the cat. And he knows about it as a loving father. He's probably I know him. He's going to go say, hey, I don't want you to kill the cat. Right. Um, But if he chooses not to, if he chooses not to kill the cat or sorry, if if he chooses not to tell his daughter that he doesn't want her to kill the cat and she kills the cat, Well, then she he's culpable for being able to prevent that travesty, um, but choosing not to um, for for whatever reason. So that's kind of what I think the word allow implies. So I think the accommodation theory is spot on. You know, I don't have a problem with accommodation theory. You know, Greg isn't the first one to propose. It goes back hundreds and hundreds of years to the early church. Uh, the, the issue I think is, I think we need to add the word necessary to it, that God necessarily accommodates. So it's not that God told, or it's not that God allowed the ancient Israelites to think he was a moral monster and just allowed them to think that, but it's that through that God cannot control and so God necessarily accommodates. We God can't just override our cultural embeddedness and, and and show us, hey, you're wrong. And God can't just uh prevent us from from doing uh writing those things about God. Uh <clears throat> and so that's where I would say I think the problem for using the word allow rather than necessary uh comes up.
0: Yeah, right on, man. Um I liked it. I thought that was a, a healthy critique and it was fun too, especially because I love both Greg and Tom and then to like, to see you interacting with both of them and bring them together is what I mean for my nerd self, it was a ton of fun. So
2: yeah. Did you ever I, get to ask him what he thought about my critiques
0: if he'd read them? No, I haven't. So I haven't, I haven't talked to him since we were texting. Hmm. Um, yeah. But I'll have to ask him and see what he thinks. Yeah. I try, no. I'm trying to get him to endorse the book. So
2: that'd be cool. I have to ask Greg
1: is an insane metal drummer. Did you know that?
2: Yeah, he's really good. <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard him talk about that on his podcast. <laughs> cool. So
1: I guess we're going to kind of make the shift over into, um, I guess, a lot of the big portion of your book. Um, so you give a pretty compelling case for applying essential kenosis theology to the inspiration of scripture. Um, So for listeners who aren't familiar with essential kenosis, can you give us a primer of what that is and how that fills in?
2: Yeah, so essential kenosis, otherwise known as the uncontrolling of God or uh, God can't theology, uh, is is known and identified with the person Thomas J. Ord, who's a theologian philosopher in the Nazarene Wesleyan tradition, um, who's also an open and relational theologian. Um, And as you mentioned, Josh, I am not an open theist, although I'd consider myself a relational theologian. Uh, But that's kind of who it's associated with. Essential kenosis is basically the idea of this. So uh, we start with God cannot act outside of God's nature. Right. Um, You know, we see this in the New Testament where it says God cannot lie. God, uh, when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful because God cannot deny God's self. Um, you know, there's all these philosophers would say God can't do anything that's illogical. So God can't make a stick longer than itself. God can't make two plus two equal five and so forth. So we say that God can't do some things and those things are outside of God's nature. So God cannot act outside of God's nature. So then we ask, OK, well, what is God's nature? Well, we would uh, people in the essential kenosis can't would say, well, God's nature is love. So that means God I can't do anything outside of God's nature. Um, So God must always be loving. Then we add a further descriptor and we say God's love is uncontrolling because we wouldn't say controlling or coercion is a loving thing to do. Right. So if a spouse is controlling or coercive, we wouldn't say that's a loving spouse. So we say that love is inherently uncontrolling. When we say love, we mean it's uncontrolling. So if God's very nature is uncontrolling love and God can't act outside of that nature, that means God can only be uncontrolling love, can only do things that are representative and characteristic of that nature. So um, God, and we will also say that God, it it is loving to give freedom. That if God can't control, that means God necessarily gives freedom. It's not something God chooses to do. It's something that's part of who God's nature is. So God gives freedom necessarily. And since God can't control, he can't retract that. Um, and so this is a, essentially a a solution to the problem of evil or a particular rendition of it. Um, if, if God can't control because God necessarily gives freedom can't act outside of God's nature. Then when Hitler killed 6 million of my dad's side of the family, then, uh, then God's not culpable because God couldn't prevent it. God couldn't override Hitler's freedom um but also god didn't cause it uh so so that's kind of the gist of essential kenosis um tom does a great job i think rooting it in the new testament and rooting it in um some of the protestant wesleyan traditions so like jacob arminius and wesley and i deal with both of those as well but I also i'm more much more interested in early church history than tom is And so I tried to also root it in some of the early theologians. Um, There's a letter to Dionysius um, that's written somewhere, I think, between 120 and 200, where he says, I'm trying to see if I can find the quote. Um, Here it is. And he says, and was his coming, talking about Christ, as a man might suppose, in power, in terror, and in dread? Not so, it was in gentleness and humility as a man sending his royal son, so he sent him as God, he sent him as man to men, he sent him and that because he was fain to save us by persuasion and not by compulsion for there is no compulsion found with God. His mission was no pursuit or hounding of us. It was an invitation to us. It was in love. So there is no compulsion found in God. This is written in the second century. So this, so some of essential kenosis at least has seeds of historical precedence. We might not say that, you know, the authors in the New Testament or the author of this letter to Dionysius, uh, we might not say that they have a fully blown essential kenosis theology, but there's certainly seeds of it there. Um, I also connected to, to. um uh, Gregory Anissa, so a couple, moving a couple centuries forward in the fourth century, he says at the end of or at the beginning of his book, um, A Life of Moses, he says that God essentially that God can't act outside of God's nature, um, and Origen says this. This was pretty on point. Most I think, from what I understand, most of the early church fathers, at least in the East didn't think God could act outside of God's nature. So, or or so um, uh, Gregory Nisa says that God's very nature is unlimited goodness. So, God is unlimited to act within God's own nature, which so he's unlimited to be good, but God cannot act outside of God's nature. Um, Therefore, God can't do evil, and that's not a limit on God. It would be like saying a horse, uh, it's a horse is limited because it can't fly. You wouldn't say a horse is limited because it can't fly, because that's not part of God's nature, that's not part of the horse's nature horse doesn't have wings. It's, it's not part of its nature to fly. So you would never say, oh, that horse is limited because I can't fly. That would be nonsense. In the same way, you wouldn't say God is limited because God can't act outside of God's nature. Well, God's nature is uncontrolling love and God can't commit evil. That's a good thing. So so that's kind of the uh, overview of essential kenosis and kind of
0: how I try to connect it to um, some of the early uh, church fathers. Yeah. Right on. That's helpful. And and so listeners, if you want to kind of dive into some more of that essential kenosis stuff and you haven't uh, listened to us before, maybe you're new, we've done a few episodes, I believe three with Tom and we talked about the uncontrolling love of God. Uh, We did an episode about God can't, and we even went in and did uh, like a Q and a specifically around the ideas in, in God can't. So if that's something that you're interested in listeners to dive deeper into the idea that Gabe was just putting forth, Highly recommend uh, checking out those episodes. Just go back in the archives. They're around. (laughs) They're around. And I'm sure Tom will be hanging out with us again in the future. We love him. Um, Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, very much so. Cool. So um, now that we have this idea of essential kenosis, if we were to apply it to the inspiration of scripture, we get some kind of participatory theology and uh yeah so what does that look like what what does this look like applied to inspiration
2: yeah so uh some of the stuff i was reading early on in seminary um it what it was uh there's an author named benjamin somner who's a jewish hebrew bible scholar um at the jewish theological seminary of uh new york i think um might be of america but he wrote a book called Revelation and Authority, and where he puts forth this participatory theology of Revelation. He traces it from the Hebrew Bible or the Torah, specifically the first five books of the Bible, all the way up through 20th century Judaism. And I remember reading that book. And I, at this point, I was familiar with Tom's work. I'd read it. I remember reading that book and saying, this is the implication of essential kenosis. If God is uncontrolling, um, like Tom Proposes, then then this is, I think, the theology of revelation we get. So, the way I like to describe what a participatory theology of revelation is, is I like to go to the example that Somner uses, uh, and I think it's a great example Um, in Exodus, I think it's 19. So, Moses is the Sinaitic revelation that's happening. All the Israelites have just come out of Egypt, they're at the, the foot of Mount Sinai, the revelation's happening. So, Moses approaches the mountain that's covered in thick darkness, and then God speaks out of that darkness and it says um in the nrsv which is the translation that a lot of scholars use and that uh it's kind of the translation we most go to in the episcopal church which is my denomination Uh, That's the one
1: that jesus wrote himself right
2: uh, yeah 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 nrsv jesus wrote it himself Yeah. yeah 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 you're spot on man um, so in uh, verse 19 of chapter 19, it says Moses would speak and God would answer in thunder. So some translations and says thunder, they say voice. The Hebrew word behind that is kol, Q-O-L. And so the base that you can translate kol either as voice or thunder, depending on the context. And if, if it's voice, then the implication is that Jesus is or not Jesus, sorry, that um, we'll get to that. I'm jumping ahead that that God is speaking to Moses in audible, understandable language and, and words. So I guess God would be speaking in Hebrew. Um, but if it is translated as thunder then it means that what is being spoken of is, is inherently interpreted. It's a sound that has to be interpreted. And, and I would actually make the case that all things are interpreted. So even if God did speak in Hebrew language, it still has to be interpreted. You know, He doesn't just hear it. And it's just like when my wife tells me something, I don't always understand it perfectly. I, I interpret it. Sometimes I have better interpretations. Other times I have really bad interpretations and I get into trouble. But um, but I think thunder and, and somner kind of Sumner points out one that, you know, the Torah, it's noted by scholars, was is at least, you know, comes from at least four different schools or traditions, four different sources, at least. And the E source, which is the source that uh Psalm or Exodus 19 is from that I just read from, uh, is the one that has this kind of participatory notion of theology. Deuteronomy actually argues against it. Um, so the Torah isn't unanimous on this, but you see some of these participatory theologies in Exodus and the E source actually carry through through the Hebrew Bible and again through rabbinic and medieval Judaism all the way to 20th century Judaism, and that's what Sommer does a great job of tracing. But so there are good, good reasons to understand um that we should translate coal as uh, thunder um and one of the the reasons is because if you look at the uh surrounding ancient literature surrounding uh the Israel, um, say specifically the Ugaritic text which the Ugarit was a, a neighbor to the north of Israel they have a, a, a the lang- their language is very it's a relative of Hebrew very similar in the same way that if we look at the word in a hebrew shalom which you know peace or uh in arabic it's salam um which the peace of god be upon you these words mean the same thing and they're similar right shalom and salam sound similar right so they're they're what's called a cognate they're related they're uh and not only are they related but these two words mean the same thing and they sound similar. So uh in the Ugaritic text um in the Epic of Baal, you know Baal the bad god from the Hebrew Bible that the Israelites were always going and worshipping uh in his epic written by the Ugaritics it talks about it uses the word QL it uh, translates literates as which is the Hebrew, which is the Ugaritic cognate of the word kol. So it's the same word, it sounds similar, QL, QOL, very similar. Um and the way it uses it in this text is through parallel uh, poetry in parallel poetry. We also find this in the Hebrew Bible. Lots of ancient Near Eastern texts use parallel poetry. The first line says something, and the second line says it again, but in different words, re- rephrased sometimes. And so, basically, whatever the second line is saying, it's saying it's just rephrasing what the first line is about. So in this poetry. Uh, from Ugar- the Ugaritic epic of Baal, it it uses, it talks about the voice of God. And then the next line says the thunder of God. So it's using thunder and voice interchangeably. And we see this in the Hebrew Bible. We see this in some of the Psalms. And you can go look at my book if you want to <laughs> find out where those are, um, or read Benjamin Salner's book. But um, another place that we see this in that I thought when I came across this, I was blown away. And I talk about this in the book. So If Somner traces this participatory theology from the e-source in the Torah, all the way through the Hebrew scriptures, um, through rabbinic Judaism, medieval Judaism, all the way up to 20th century Judaism, and all the New Testament are Jewish texts, might we find this Jewish idea in the Jewish New Testament? Maybe. And in John 12, I would say yes, John 12, um, uh, let's start at 28, uh, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And then the narrator says, then a voice came from heaven. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And then Jesus, you know, goes on to interpret what just happened. So the, the two things that we see in that is one, that when God speaks, there are multiple interpretations, right? We're inherently interpreting. So some people thought it was an angel. Other people thought it was uh, was thunder. And then Jesus is like, no, this is my father, bro. And he explains it. Um, But the other thing is that voice and thunder are used interchangeably. Again, they heard a voice from heaven and it sounded like thunder. So that idea of God's voice is thunder is in the New Testament, is in John chapter 12, verse uh, 28. Um, So so this idea of participatory theology, um, I'm not saying that we necessarily find a full blown view of it. But so that's how I would explain participatory theology. Um, and, and well, let me add this to it. So that's kind of the idea of coal translated as thunder. Um, it has to be interpreted. So the idea is that a divine revelation happens, right? Something was revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. But what the the scriptures that are produced from that experience are an interpretation, a, a human response or a human interpretation to what was revealed. Um, and so that, that essentially is the participatory theology of revelation. And I say, if God cannot control, this is, this is what's necessary because God can't control our interpretations as humans. We inherently interpret things. God can't control that. Therefore, what we receive, uh, when we write scriptures a human response to revelation, um, if I may go a little bit further, um, I get, I think it's in chapter four. I start to talk about, um, I'll just quickly do this because I know you have other questions, but in chapter four, I talk start to talk about uh Jesus. Um, does he have I I don't argue or even ask the question, does Jesus have a participatory theology of revelation? That would require a whole book and a bunch of research. I didn't have time for. So I look instead I looked at how does Jesus interpret scripture? How does he read it? How does he handle it? Um, And does that congrue better with participatory theologies of Revelation? The answer I give is is yes. So that kind of gives us permission to accept this participatory theology of Revelation. Um, But one of the things I talk about um, in chapter, I guess that's four, is that Uh, I start to talk about that Jesus is revelation. So Karl Barth doesn't make a, he doesn't say revelation and Jesus are distinguished. He says, Jesus is revelation, right? Um, And I think the best of the, in my biased opinion, the best of the Christian tradition has never separated Jesus from revelation. Jesus is revelation, right? God's revelation is never separate from God's self. It's always part and present of who God is. Jesus is God's revelation. Um, So when, um. So when revelation happens, um, what that's Jesus. That's the word of God, the, the son of God, the second person, the Trinity. And, and our responses to it um, are what produced is scripture, tradition, so forth. Now, here's the thing. In, in, Hebrew, in, in Jewish theology, there's this concept of heavenly Torah versus earthly Torah, right? The rabbis argued about this. Um, there's this idea that there's a Torah in heaven and a Torah on earth. And, and they they argued well what well, to what extent are these similar and uh, some of them said well they're exactly the same other of others said that no it's just an interpretation it's a human response and an imperfect shadow or copy of the heavenly torah i use those words very very uh intentionally so hold on to that um so the argument i make is that jesus is heavenly torah of which the earthly Torah is a representation of human response to. And where I get off on saying, making such a claim is in, uh, again, a Jewish idea of heavenly Torah versus earthly Torah. Might we expect that this Jewish idea that appeared in rabbinic Judaism a couple hundred years after the new Testament, might we expect this also to be in Jewish texts in the first century, say the new Testament? Well, yes, Gabe. Yeah, I think we might expect that. So in, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter one, and I actually don't talk about chapter one in the book. Um, a friend of mine, Keith Giles, pointed this out to me. Big dumbo over here. didn't think about this. But in, in chapter one, it says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. And when we get to the chapters I did talk about, eight through 10, um, you get this idea. Uh, it says that the the tabernacle or the temple were a shadow, a sketch, a copy of the thing that was in heaven. Uh, And it also uses this language uh, to speak about the Torah. In chapter 10, verse 1, it says, since the law has only a writing of the good things to come and not the true form of these realities. So the law, the, the Torah and the the tabernacle or temple are shadows, copies of the things in heaven. And in chapter one of Hebrews, this is Jesus is the exact representation of God. If Jesus is the exact representation of God, and he's the son that was sent from heaven, then fool, who do you think the heavenly Torah is? It's Jesus. Jesus, is the heavenly Torah, the earthly Torah is the shadow or copy of the thing that's in heaven. So I think this idea of heavenly Torah versus earthly Torah is somewhat, you know, who knows if it's a full-blown heavenly Torah, earthly Torah, theology but i think it's somewhat in the uh the the letter to the hebrews um i'll just stop there
0: no that's it's wonderful the jesus centrality is like fantastic man like that's the i mean honestly the, so the reason that i even like went down this road in essential kenosis and open relational theology the likes is because of jesus like jesus changed everything because i moved from what well, we talked about the start of this episode this bible-centered theology uh which most christians hold to um and instead said okay scratch that fundamentalists for second. hold to fundamentalists that's yeah. that's yeah. yes 100% Fun, uh, fundamentalists hold to um yeah not most christians in my experience yeah, most christians, Orthodox don't. nope not at all yeah 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 so um Thank you for catching me on that. Um no uh, da, 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 Shit. Sorry anyway, throwing you off no, you're, you're good. Uh Jesus is my homeboy. That's the, the gist of it. But like, it just, that's, that's when things shifted for me. That's when it started to make sense. This idea that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of, of who God is. I mean, Paul even talks about this too. You know, Paul says that like, we only saw things like dimly, like through mm-hmm, a dimly mm-hmm. lit mirror or, or whatever language he used. Um, And then John goes on to say some really radical stuff. Like, you know, no one has seen the father um, until they've seen the person of Jesus, or even he said like Moses through Moses came the law, but through Jesus came grace and truth. I think that's an interesting uh, back and forth there too, a juxtaposition. They're saying, here's this thing, the law, but truth. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah came through the person of Jesus, the revelation. So it's wonderful. And so the, the, I don't know, for me, it it just all makes sense in my mind so much like this, the uh, applying essential kenosis to the inspiration of scripture and this participation language is just wonderful. Like for me, it's like, we're like, like God is inviting us or, or, or the Bible is, is this like beautiful story of people interacting with the one that Jesus called Yahweh and then like jesus shows up and is like this is like this is the gist of it like this is yeah, yeah. the actual revelation um and then as a christian i feel like we get to be caught into that that tradition that you know with tradition of wisdom that interaction uh with god um continues today that that revelation continues today um i guess mediated by the person of jesus or whatever um I don't know. I just, I get excited because I think your book kicks ass. Um, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then also um, on a side note, like it, I wish I would have read it while I was uh, writing this um, article essay thing for one of those like collab books that Tom mm-hmm. edits together. Oh, yeah, Cause I just, I wrote about um, salvation as participation with God. Mm. um, and, exactly. And so like this, I don't know, it all ties together in my mind The I feel like my ADHD brain like connects all these different things. And then people yeah. are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, and since you also have ADHD, I'm, I'm sure you experience that as well.
2: <laughs> that's it. Like, okay. So that's, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because people have a very disciplinary focus to where you know this is in its own category this is in its own category and they don't ever cross pollinate whereas like i don't know if it's my adhd or my personality or whatever but maybe you can you know relate to the and it sounds like you can it's like i see all these disparate theologies participatory theology over here jesus-centered theology theosis you know uh essential kenosis all these different things the bible is not the word of god jesus is the word of god. i see all how they connect and that's what i tried to do in the book is kind of make all those connections Um, And I hope that kind of comes across in the book. And I think that's why the book is unique, not only because it's the first book explaining biblical inspiration from an essentially canonic point of view, but also because it crosses a lot of interdisciplinary boundaries um, in a way that a lot of people don't make those connections.
0: Yeah, no, dude, 100%, I can relate. Like when I was still a pastor and I would preach sermons, the biggest critique that I would always get is like you know afterwards or when when we're talking about it um the head pastor or you know the executive pastor we'd have these conversations and be like, Josh, you have to remember the things that you connect in your brain other people don't <laughs> <laughs> and so like you're you're making all of these assumptions and assuming that people see all these connections but they don't and Gotta so draw like, the you, line you have to exactly and so I think you nail it in your book because you do draw the line like you, i mean i think you killed it like
2: honestly it 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 um like a dead horse that i didn't want to come back as a zombie right did you read that footnote
0: (laughs) i didn't read that footnote but man you missed out i had little jewels in
2: there like that
0: i know so i'll i'll admit publicly on air that often i don't read footnotes Oh um, In unless it's like a tangent and and i know that's where a lot of great stuff is like pete ends puts an insane amount of ridiculous stuff in his footnotes as well. So I got to start doing that. <laughs> yeah, I you'll have to go back. I think it's in like the last chapter. I'm talking about
2: implications and I okay. mentioned that the Bible is not the word of God. And in the footnote, I said, I know I've beaten this like a dead horse, but I want to make sure the horse doesn't come back as a zombie horse and kill us all.
0: Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. I like so. it. That's a quality footnote. Yeah, listener thanks, should, man. Listeners should purchase your book specifically for that footnote alone, if nothing else. Just that.
2: Yeah. I, and, and, you know, I also put in like where when there's words I use that I don't think the normal person is familiar with. I, I define those in the footnotes and I have a glossary. Yeah. The glossary was,
0: was super helpful. Yeah. In the yeah. back. That's cool. Um, Well, I guess, geez, because I feel like we could keep, keep talking. Do you, do you have any more questions? I'd love to talk about
2: inspiration. I didn't I didn't actually get around to inspiration very much.
0: Right. Yeah. So yeah. let's let's go there drop it okay. like it's hot in drop regards to it like inspiration hot. i'm yeah.
2: gonna do some theological twerking here so you get ready yes. you know
0: yeah theological uh, twerking. it's what all the kids are doing now <laughs> nowadays
2: all the kids are doing so um i will say this there is one aspect the theology of what i'm about to describe is in the book there are a couple things that i'm about to describe that uh elaborations of the theology that aren't in the book that i've come to articulate after i wrote the book unfortunately Um, And some of that was because I wrote my thesis on origins via scripture. And that was amazing. Um, Origin is the man. And uh, so there were things about what I'm about to say that came from that that aren't in the book. But again, the theology is in the book. So this is extra. That's why you listen to podcasts, get the extra bit, right? The extra bit, the extra bit. So uh, so second Timothy be through 316, people might say, well, that's so clear. That's it's saying the Bible is the word of God. But if you look at it, it says all scriptures, God breathed or God inspired. It doesn't actually say God's word. People, I think, infer, oh, God breathed. That means it, it comes out of the mouth of God. It's God's word. Um, but that's not necessarily clear. And here are some of the reasons. So in, in chapter one, I think in section four, I talk about the broadness of the use of the term inspiration. And this is where I get into some of this stuff specifically, but, um in the in new testament studies <clears throat> or in any sort of studying of ancient literature the way you figure out what a word means is by its use right you do that with any field really so when i say um gubalin which is a word i made up uh, in order to understand what i mean by that you pay attention to how i'm using it so if i use gubalin you know when we're clinking drinks getting wasted or whatever and good craft beer and uh uh, i you know i say gubalan you might think oh it's a it's a it's something you say when you clink drinks and you're having a good time or whatever but my my point is that words only have meaning based off how we use them we create words as human beings and we give them meaning and they're and the meanings change based off how we use them so if you're a, a new testament scholar you're going to look at the word that we translate as God breather, God inspired in 2nd Timothy. You're going to ask, is this found anywhere else in 2nd Timothy? And if it is, you're going to look, how is it being used in 2nd Timothy? And that will shine light on what it means. Unfortunately, we don't have that word in anywhere else in 2nd Timothy. So next they're going to look at um, any they're going to look at the rest of the New Testament. Is this word used anywhere else in the New Testament? If so, how's it used? That's going to shine light on what its meaning is. Unfortunately, it's not in the New Testament. So we're going to look at Greco-Roman literature of the first century and so forth, and Jewish literature, other Jewish literature of the, the first century. And we're going to say, okay, how is this used? Where is it used? And, and therefore, it shines light on what it means. Unfortunately, it's this word doesn't show up anywhere else in the, the Greco-Roman literature, the Jewish literature, anywhere else in the New Testament, anywhere else in 2 Timothy. The reason is because 2 Timothy, the author Is a badass, and like me, he makes his own words up. So he's the first person that we can tell that made this word. So that makes it really hard to figure out how it's being used. It's used one time the entire New Testament, entire Jewish literature of the time, entire Greco-Roman. So we can't just say, "Oh, this means it's God's word." It's we don't have enough evidence of how it's used in practice to to say that. The first time really that we start to see this word used outside of the new Testament is with the church fathers so I think Clement uses this in his letter to the Corinthians saying that his letter is inspired by God Um, but that was probably written around 90 or so Um, and then in second the second century and the third century and the fourth century this term gets used so the church fathers are the first people that start using this term Um, so really if we want to understand what this term is we have to go to them how are they using it and the way they 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 so one, um, spoiler alert, the 66 books in the Protestant canon isn't the canon of all Christians. And, and technically, and I say this, I think, in a footnote, there is no such thing as biblical canon. There's no such thing. Canon as a term wasn't used uh, to uh, in, in reference to the Bible to like the 17th century, I think. Um, it meant originally the rule of faith, which the creeds are a form of the rule of faith, right? Right. Um, and so, but there was no council. You know, Dan Brown's book and movie, you know, The Da Vinci Code, where a bunch of white guys that get together and they decide these are the books that are going to be the Bible. One, there were no white people to council Nicaea. Athanasius was a black dwarf, so he's a black dude, probably from northern Sudan. So, and everyone else was like Turkey, Syria, so forth. So, there's a bunch of brown people. So, council Nicaea hashtag no whites. You know, I want to make a T-shirt. Um, so, one, Dan Brown gets that wrong. Two. Um, the council and I see didn't decide what books would be in the canon. There's never been an ecumenical council that I'm aware of, at least not in the first four ones that uh, they decided these are going to be the books in our canon. And obviously Martin Luther is like, mm, I'm not cool with these other books that the church has been reading for, you know, for like ever. So I'm going to get rid of those. I'm just going to do my 66 canon book and even question books like James and Revelation and, and so forth. And so um, <laughs> the idea of canon, is not a thing. It's not a thing. And even today, the Protestants have 66 books, Catholic have 70 something books, Eastern Orthodox have 80 something books, right? So anyway, canon is not a thing. But um, there are books, I would say, that being said, I would say there are some books that are canon and scripture are not the same thing. That's something we need to distinguish. I would say there are, there are books that are legitimately scripture and books that are legitimately not. So I wouldn't call the Gnostic Gospels Christian scripture. I would say those are heresy. Um, and I think there are good reasons to to reject Gnosticism and so forth. That's a tangent, we don't need to go into that. But um, so all that being said, when so the books that the 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 uh early church read, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Bible, had a lot more books than Protestants include in their Old Testament canon. But a lot of those books were called inspired, as well as creeds got called inspired, uh bishops got called inspired uh monks and nuns got called inspired so all these different things are inspired so if we think that god inspired is synonymous used interchangeably with god's word then we have to sit and and we think that that's what the early church meant by it then when they say that creeds are god's inspired they're saying the creeds are god's word they're saying that bishops are god's word they're saying that uh um monks and nuns are god's word but if you read those texts where they say these things are inspired. And you quickly, you know, use that interchangeably to see. Oh, does this make sense? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't. They're not calling the creeds or bishops or whatever or nuns. They're not calling these God's word. So clearly, the way they use God inspired does not mean God's word. Okay. So that's the first thing. So then you have to ask. Okay. Well, it doesn't mean God's word. What does it mean? So.
0: Gabe, I don't know if you can hear us, but you got froze, dude. It's a very nice photo, by the you way. We need to go to Genesis. There's two texts, I think we. No. Okay, I'm back. Where did I end? All right, you're back. So you said you were about to make a really big point, and then you froze, like. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> start with ah! the. Yeah, and then we'll edit that. What, bit what
2: did I get? What was the last thing I said? Uh. What's it about the,
0: uh, um, you were about to say, the, you were like, and so if this, if this is true about how they were using this word and we don't know, then it has to mean something. So,
2: yeah. So I think what I was saying was that, uh, if they didn't use the Bible, if they didn't use the word, uh, God inspired, uh, interchangeably with God's word, that's not what they meant by that. Right. Right. That's where I was. Okay. Yes. Um, if that's not what they meant by that. Okay. Well, what does God inspired mean then? And there are two texts that I think we need to look to Genesis and uh, Matthew 5, 17. We'll start with Genesis In Genesis, the creation of man. There are actually two. We, we don't pick this up, but there are actually two parts to the creation of man. God forms Adam from the dust of the ground, which form you can think of as create. Form means create. Um, so uh, uh, God forms Adam or creates Adam from the dust of the ground, but he's not yet a living being. The second part that happens is that God breathes God's spirit the life of God into Adam, right? So if God breathes God's light, life into Adam, who is the life of God? Christ. John 14, six says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is life. So there's two cre- acts of the creation of Adam. One, he's created or formed from the dust of the ground. Two, only then is it, does he become a living being when the spirit of God breathes God's life into him. So Genesis, or sorry, Second Timothy and so and remember, hold on to this, that Jesus is life that's breathed into Adam by the spirit of God. Um, Genesis or sorry, Second Timothy 316 doesn't say all scriptures God formed or God created. Doesn't say that part. So it's only using the second part of the creation of Adam's story from Genesis. It says all scriptures God breathed. OK, keep that in mind. Um and then we get to Matthew five seventeen, and in Matthew five seventeen, Jesus says, I'm not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And a few verses later, he seemingly contradicts himself. He quotes texts from the old Testament Bible, uh, from, from the Torah. And he says, you have heard it it said, but I'm telling you something different. So he seems to contradict himself. And the way I reconcile that, is, you know, from earlier, I say in the book, uh, if Jesus is the heavenly Torah, which the earthly Torah is a, uh, a reflection of, then what he's speaking about is himself. He is the 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 law that will not be removed. Um so he's not actually contradicting himself and it makes sense what he's doing. But also there's another thing that I think Jesus is doing that that we need to understand uh uh Second Timothy in light of. And this is and this isn't in the book, sorry guys, but this is the metaphor of the jelly donut. Okay, keep <laughs> the jelly yes. donut in mind. So Jesus in Matthew 5, 17, again, all I've come not to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. The word fulfill. In Greek, the Greek word behind that that we translate is palero, which also means to make full of or to fill. So, but we typically translate, we always translate it as fulfill. But I think we have reason to think that no, 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 no. Maybe we should translate it differently. And here's the thing. So, in Origen's commentary on the book of Matthew, when he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount, this passage, he starts to describe scripture, as a uh, uses the metaphor of a net as scripture. So scripture is the net of which before Christ came, the net was yet to be filled. And then he quotes, he cites Matthew 5.17. So Origen in the third century seems to understand this Greek word palero behind fuf- what we translate as fulfilled in 5.17. Seems to understand that as to fill rather than fulfill. So then if we translate Matthew 5, 17 is, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fill them, that's something very different. So, okay, keep that in mind. Jesus has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fill them. And remember from 2 Timothy is pointing back to the Genesis story, the second part, where God breathes the life of God and Adam, creating a living being. So in 2 Timothy 3, 16, keeping both those in mind, what we see is the jelly donut. Scripture is the donut and Jesus is the jelly filling. So Jesus has come to fill the law. Jesus is the life of God that filled Adam, right? Um, And made Adam a living being. So scripture, God breathes means that God breathes God's life. God's life is Jesus into scripture who fills scripture. He came to fill scripture. So 2 Timothy 3.16, I think, is a sacramental or incarnational approach to scripture. And in the the Eastern Church, um, particularly the early Eastern Church, they didn't see inspiration as located in the text, the historical text as we do in the West. They saw it as located in the interpretation of the text, which is exactly what is going on in everything I just described. Jesus, so Origen talks about that Jesus is the, the 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 jelly? It gets filled into the donut. He doesn't actually use a jelly-filled donut. I don't think those existed then, in the third century. But he, G, the God, God breathes God's life, God's uh, son Jesus, into the text. He fills the text, and Origen says that he uses the analogy uh, of the incarnation to compare scripture to. He says just like Jesus took on the flesh of a human being, uh, and became fully man, fully divine uh and yet his divinity was hidden from us from his flesh so scripture the literal meaning the the, which is the top meaning right the the early church didn't deny a literal meaning but they thought there was a spiritual meaning underneath uh that you needed to dig deeper that was the, the main thing you wanted to get to that was the jelly filling in the donut you wanted to get to so so the literal meaning is the flesh of christ allegoric, you know, speaking in terms of a metaphor um, and Jesus is the jelly, the jelly, right? Jesus is the spiritual meaning filled into the text. So this is why we read the text sacramentally or incarnationally. We read it as having a secondary spiritual sense. Jesus is the spiritual meaning in scripture. Um, that uh, is filled throughout scripture. So God breathes does not mean it is God's word. It means that God breathes God's life or word who is Jesus into the text. And he becomes the the not only the spiritual meaning in the text, but when we read, according to Ama- the road to Emmaus in, in Luke 24, when we read scripture according th- uh, to Jesus, when we read it through the lens of the crucified and risen Christ, we see the veil lifted as Paul talks about in Corinthians, we see the veil lifted um, that this literal meaning is left, and we see his divinity, we see Christ in, in the text. So, mic drop boom oh, roasted. So, three
1: things to say one, um, Gabe, you're smarter than anybody I've ever met in my entire life. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly. so like, like, you like, it's one of those things where, like, I, I, I see being smart and being wise, um, as not only someone who has information or understands information, but then can explain it in a way where other people understand too. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like, I find, I I just found that to be the way that you are. So, you know, it's, I I don't think it's, I don't think it's being smart if no one can understand Mm -hmm. what you're saying. And I think the way that you have these things and they're all kind of like, you know, ideas that get thrown up, into the air and then they all get pulled back in together um makes it really great and then number two i'm not editing any of that because like like the part where we where we lost you um because i think it's it's fine but i think it'll be tough to like you know really get it the way we need it but then three um which goes back another place but i'd never had heard that argument on canon before um Mm which is really interesting to me so i don't want to talk about it now because i think it's deserving of its own episode um so i think it'd be really great um once we finish here to talk about getting you back and talking about canon because i think that would be um just a really interesting i don't think people have thought about that before or heard about that before Um,
2: so um one go ahead I was just going to say I'll send you I did an episode on my podcast with Warren Carter and we talked exactly about that. Okay. Um, so that's who I've gotten not just him but that's who I've gotten a lot of stuff. So I'll have to send you that episode.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um I guess the the last thing we wanted to ask you um is you had you had mentioned um that you had wanted to expand on or say differently something in regards to your book. Um So I think Josh and I feel privileged that that you want to use. Yeah, yeah. I think
0: Gabe just nailed it. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) He he did.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, then you did it. So sweet. I did it.
2: (laughs) Is there anything else that uh, you guys want to talk about? Um, The word of God. I, you know, I had that huge. So originally in the first chapter, I had what's in the appendix now on the word of God used in the early church. That was all in the first chapter. Oh right on. Okay. And uh, people were like, "Gabe, this is unreadable."
0: <laughs> so I took
2: a, I took like six examples and commented on them. through the rest in the appendix. But I don't know if that's something. Whatever you guys want to talk about. So.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, I, I think right I think the the thing that I you know, um, well, what I think you do really well also is like you like, you know, either you're screen mirroring our screens or something, but like you've answered a lot of the questions that we had before we got a chance to answer ask them um because you you're very thorough <laughs> in the way that you speak and not in a like oh my gosh like this guy is so thorough like in a like oh like he is like he is nailing everything because we've got it all laid out so um like we like i said i, I Josh I invited Gabe while you were guys listeners Josh was just in the bathroom i think and um Spans i invited in Gabe to, Gabe to come back and uh uh talk about canon with us uh, at some point, which would be uh, really cool. Not canons like they used in the Revolutionary War. Um,
2: I would know nothing about that.
1: But canon, like the idea of, the, of scripture is canon. But I, I don't personally have any other any other questions besides like the basic wrap-up questions. But Josh, you have anything else?
0: Um, I mean, yes, but also we could keep going for three more hours like that's the problem <laughs> um damn um yeah i don't i mean i don't even know like i, I mean i literally have your book up in front of me there's and there's a lot there i'm like we could talk about this we could talk about this we could talk about this um yeah th- i mean there's a ton packed in and and also to your credit you did it in such a way that it's uh i think it it's it's it'll work for people like you don't have to be a nerd to come along and follow what yeah. you're saying like you you do a good job of taking your your big concepts and ideas all the lines that I'm really bad at connecting for people you do a great job of doing that and then presenting it i'm really glad you said um, that
2: because That was the, because this is groundbreaking that no one's written on a doctrine, essentially canonic doctrine of inspiration. I needed this to be somewhat academic so it could serve as, uh, you know, a foundation for stuff to be built off. And so that when it gets criticized, it's not like, oh, this is crap, you know? Um, But at the same time, I wanted it to be, wanted it to be accessible to people that didn't have any theological training. Yeah. And that was like a really hard line to walk.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I think you did a good job. And may, I mean, maybe, perhaps, I mean, for sure I'm biased because, like, <laughs> a lot of the people that you cited and all that kind of stuff, like, I know this world, so I've followed it very easily. Yeah. And so, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I really appreciate it, man. And I, w- I would love to have you on again. I I second Marty's uh, Marty's invitation. Whenever you want to come hang out, you should. That's, you know, that's the gist. And maybe... uh. I'll send you some beer or something oh, that'd, from that'd be fantastic. The brewery that I work what at. What the heck How is that, that, that a... legal? Are you allowed to do that?
1: I don't think you can. You Are never I... send me anything. You sent me pictures, and you say if you want some, you're well, going to so... have to come here and get it. And It's like, well, what the That's heck? That's exactly man? Right. like. I that's
0: right but i mean if i just so i but i have a personal relationship with you that stems back years if i was just like hey gabe come stay at my house he'd be like you're freaking weird i don't think so or he'd he'd be like okay cool like sounds good we'll we'll have some beer like i don't know i
2: lived in asia and so i'd probably do the latter yeah you know americans have this really like we think that sort of thing's weird, but like Asians are very hospitable. It's like they've never met a stranger in their life, you know. I think you know, I'm I'm always downing on American culture, but I think we could learn a tour thing from you know, yes, uh, other cultures. So
1: I agree. Well,
2: yeah. well, Gabe, I mean, where?
1: I guess like I I guess we should probably just wrap up now, and then we can always have you back on again and talk about other things. Yeah, for sure. Um, because you know. I think listeners love listening to long episodes, but I think after a while, it's like, okay, well, we could just do this two episodes and then they, we'd get double the duty. So um, where, where can people find you and how would you like people to interact with you? Where can they get your book? That kind of stuff.
2: Yeah. So the publisher is choir publishing and um, I don't know when this will be released, uh, but I think we're going to get the book off to the printer sometime this week. So a month. From this week hopefully the book will be released so sometime in uh probably late june uh you'll be able to get it on amazon i think you'll be able to get it on uh barnes and noble and kind of all the main places if you want to interact with me facebook is probably the best way to do so you can just type in gabriel gordon um look for me that way i also blog uh is part of an ecumenical blog that i run called the misfits theology club i haven't blogged in a while because i've been doing other stuff but uh i think um and you can actually contact us and i'm the one that gets the emails i don't look at those very often so facebook might be better but those are probably the two main ways so.
1: cool well man this has been this has been really great um and like i said listeners as you as you probably heard uh if you as you're at the end of the episode um there is a lot here in this episode and it's just barely scratching the surface i think of what the book entails um and what gabe has to offer um as his his own individual is like like we we had ryan mullins on about a month ago and Mm. like ryan mullins is like ridiculously smart josh and i i I met him in person josh and i worked at a church that he spoke at once Mm. um and uh like one of those people again that was like a super like dude like there is like like I, we're, we're not even like we're not even we're not even scratching the surface of like the knowledge that this dude has and like i feel like you're exactly the same like we could we could talk for another you know 48 hours and we still would be like okay well like i i think we have to come back to that <laughs> yeah
2: so, so it it might surprise listeners and you guys to hear but my biggest insecurity is that i'm dumb
1: no But, but I understand, I understand that feeling because like, as a, so I was a worship pastor for a long time and my biggest insecurity is being on stage and the quality of Mm -hmm. my singing voice. So Mm -hmm. I think the things that other people see in us that we are good at become our biggest for those that have insecurity issues, those become our, our largest insecurities. Um, So, I mean, listeners get his book. Um, Gabe will be back hundred percent positive. hundred percent so um otherwise uh josh i think i think this is a this is an episode this, this is an episode in itself here so
0: we did it we did yeah. it together so well, well i guess josh <laughs> one thing i want to
1: say before we end um okay. so um this doesn't have anything to do with gabe unless gabe wants to do this um we haven't done a really super awesome job with our patron feed um but we do Well, we do have a patreon um and uh, we don't necessarily, like, offer anything particular, like, on a regular basis to our patrons, but, like, we try to do something, I don't know, like, once or twice a year. So, like, unfortunately, like, we aren't the best at, like, giving you something, but, like, if you want to support Josh and I and the work we do, and, like, the the small, small, minuscule costs it is to run a podcast, <laughs> like, you could you could help us <laughs> whatever, whatever you want. We, we don't expect anything from anybody, but uh we never talk about it. So I figured like, we may have to say at the end of a podcast. Right
2: okay. Me. Give them um, money guys. <laughs>
1: I yeah.
0: endorse it. Yeah. Please, I this, mean, there we go. Just, Get, we have to add that to our, our Instagram. We are yeah. endorsed by Gabe.
1: Yeah. I, I just had to buy a new computer and new recording software for us to edit the podcast. So like, if you wanted to Venmo me, a couple thousand bucks like at least, you know, my wife would love you my wife actually would start listening to the podcast if the podcast listeners paid for my new computer <laughs> awesome. so well hey uh thanks for listening everybody you can obviously find us at rethinking faith on instagram and uh there is a discussion group on facebook rethinking faith discussion group. i'm a
0: shit moderator i i've not done a good job with that at all either well
1: i've done an okay job <laughs> there's been a <laughs> in the last like six months there's been like three people that have asked to join and i've just said yes to all of them and there's been some every once in a while there's some cool discussion points in there so um if you'd like to join that and discuss and be a part would be awesome and um but yeah hey uh thanks for listening to our podcast (laughs) (laughs) go caps go blackhawks go kraken and go white socks go mighty ducks i guess avalanche uh (laughs) Go all the sports teams. Yeah. (laughs) Peace and love, guys.